What's up, heroes? Welcome to the Producer Life Podcast, episode 85. Today I'm joined by Sai, better known as a boy with a bag. Sai is a multi-talented producer who was born in India and spent time growing up in both South India and Chicago. He's an up-and-coming house music producer with his first release on Denmark Records two months ago. Sai's been generating a lot of interest online with his high-energy, danceable tracks, which resulted in a recent interview with EDM Identity. During this episode, we discuss his love of house music, his Mac-centric workflow, and how his Denmark release came about. But first, I gotta give a big shout-out to this show's sponsor, Melodics.com. So, if you haven't tried it, the Melodics desktop app gamifies learning to finger drum, play the piano, or just level up your drumming skills. Now, even if you've tried taking music lessons in the past and you had trouble sticking with it, you gotta try Melodics. It's just a totally different experience because it is available to you 24-7 at your computer and it works with any MIDI controller and it just makes the learning process a lot of fun. I started back in with the app and there's just an amazing number of lessons and courses to take in multiple different genres and styles. And even though there's a ton of material there, it's really organized and helps you keep track of your progress as you level up. One day I plan to incorporate some finger drumming into my live performances, but in the meantime, I also really like the way that I'm learning more about rhythmic patterns as I take the lessons, which helps me as a producer right now. There's no cost to trying out Melodics. They've got 60 free lessons and just about any MIDI controller will work. From there, if you'd like to subscribe and unlock an annual premium content subscription, use producerlife-20 for 20% off an annual subscription or 20% off a monthly subscription for the first three months. Again, that's producerlife-20, and you'll save 20%, and it also helps support this podcast. And now, cue the intro music. All right, Sai, welcome to the Producer Life Podcast. I'm, I'm so glad to be on. Thank you for having me today. Well, I'm thrilled. You are uh, really just taking off, and uh, I'm excited to talk about your recent Denmark release and about production tips and sort of where you've been and where you're going. Awesome, awesome. I'd love to like share what I know, but also like keeping in mind, you know, I'm also early in my journey, right? So I'm still learning, but as much as I can like help someone else as well with what I know so far. Um, that's kind of my goal with this. And I appreciate you inviting me on. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you've, you've already come a long way. And as I understand it, you, you grew up in India and you're now in Chicago. Can you talk a little bit about that transition and what brought you to the United States first? Yeah, of course. So actually my dad used to work in India and then it's kind of like a classic immigrant story. Well, not classic, but I would say like a lot of like classic South Asian or Indian immigrant stories where, um, a lot of my parents, like my friends' parents as well, who are South Asian, uh, our parents just left India kind of after they were about our age, you know, just graduated college trying to f- find their jobs. And they left everything they knew and came to a new country and they figured everything out. And then I was born a few years later, actually back in India. Um, but then I was uh, flown out, I believe, within a year and I grew up most of my life here and also partially went to school in India but I ended up coming back to Chicago for uh, college. I went to Loyola, Chicago. It's a great uh, Jesuit university um, in Chicago. Met a lot of friends, got into graphic design and music there. And here we are. Okay. And and that's your your education background is you, you've got a background in graphic design. Is that right? No, I actually have a background in biology and computer science, uh, bio and bioinformatics. Um, at Loyola. It's not anything art related, but uh, here we are. All, all of wow. that was on okay. the side with YouTube and stuff like that. Okay, fantastic. So how did, I, I know that you, looking at your YouTube channel, you kind of started off doing some experimenting with some Bollywood remixes and now you're a up and coming house music producer. How did you get your introduction to electronic music and make that transition from sort of Bollywood remixes to house? Yeah, of course. So initially, I used to make those Bollywood remixes. I was also on an acapella team 
Uh, I was a beatboxer where we won a few awards here and there nationally. And eventually I kind of transitioned into trying to make original music only because I loved kind of combining the two cultures I'm a part of, you know, the American side and like back in India. But as you know, both of those songs in any mashup are not owned by me, right? They're owned either by Mm -hmm. a record label in India or in the U.S., And that kind of had a, so I had a hard time with accounts being taken down, songs being taken down that, you know, take a significant amount of time and creative effort to put together. And on that same note, I also had a video production company with one of my best friends called Chris Media Chicago, where we did recaps for Bollywood celebrities and actually even did stuff for a future, like the rapper. And we used to use music in those videos. And also we never owned any of the music. So even though we had thousands of YouTube plays, we couldn't make any money off that. Just all of that combined together kind of put me in a mindset of what if I could make original music? And I was kind of really gravitating towards rap music initially because I listened to a lot of hip hop and trap music in addition to house. But just the repetitiveness, the repetitiveness of house music with those special elements every four, eight, 16 bars that really kept my attention um, kind of really got me interested in that genre. And I realized that um, if I listen to house and make house music, um, it's original. Plus, I can take my favorite other genre music and remix it into house. Because house music can kind of encapsulate like a bunch of genres within it with a simpler remix. So that's kind of where um, I was kind of all over the place. But that's kind of where um, I got into original house music production. No, that makes perfect sense. And then you started off with GarageBand, as, as so many people do, and, and you moved to Logic. Why did you pick Logic as your doll of choice? Yeah, of course. So uh, fun fact, beginning of quarantine, I was going to switch to Ableton. I took a few lessons from West End, um, Tyler Morris. He was uh, really helpful. I took two lessons or so with him. I learned a lot of the basic concepts on Ableton, but Something about my graphic design and uh, aesthetic side of me couldn't work with Ableton. It felt like it was Windows 98, man. And I get that's not what it's meant for. It's probably more powerful than Logic, but I can't look at that every day when I'm making music. And in and, and apart from that, um, in Chicago, I believe the this is one of two Apple stores where you can walk in and get help for Logic because it's uh, one of the flagship stores in the world. So... I took advantage of two of those Genius Bar sessions to kind of ask questions around the software. And the fact that GarageBand is on an iPhone. So sometimes I come up with a loop on my iPhone when I'm on the bus or something in college. Then I can airdrop it to my Mac, continue the same project in Logic where I left off and finish a song. And to this day, I still use some of the exclusive GarageBand packs that are available only on iPhone to record something, airdrop it, and use that in my song. It's stuff that's not available on Loop Cloud, Splice, or any other royalty-free service that a lot of producers might use. Huh. Well, that's that's quite a workflow, I sort of a Mac-centric workflow. When I was learning a little bit about you and, and kind of doing my research online, um, one of the things that kind of interested me about your workflow is that you tend to work on several songs simultaneously. Is that right? Yes, actually, I it's kind of unconventional, um, unless maybe I meet someone else who also does this, but um, I kind of start a song, an idea, maybe four, eight, 16 bar loop, sometimes a whole song idea uh, with a few elements missing. And I kind of think of another idea. So I start a new idea every two, three days or so. And it's not full-fledged ideas, but what I do every once in a while is look at a few of these exported waves. So first of all, when I start a new idea, I export the project as a WAV file, upload to SoundCloud on private. And I have a playlist that I just listen to sometimes when I'm driving where I go through all of those works in progress. And I kind of find elements that could potentially go into another song that I just made, like another idea. And I combine a bunch of ideas to come out with the final track. Okay. And... So of the of the songs that you may be working at at any given time, how many of those actually wind up getting finished or do they all kind of just get sort of mashed up together into one the final final track? So it depends. Um, I will say that for every song that I put out, there's at least 10 or 11 ideas 
that I might have picked from or or 10 or 11 ideas that may never be released. They're just eight bar snippets of a dope baseline. But I still have those in the back of my head in case I want to use that somewhere else or finish it up um, in the future. Okay. All right. Well, that that makes sense. So start to finish, how long does it take you to put together a track generally? Start to finish, um, I kind of divide it up into three or four segments. One is like kind of the idea phase, like I said before, and then the arrangement and then mm-hmm. kind of adding effects and sending it out to someone else for mixing and mastering. And um, up to the mixing and mastering point to get a song fully exactly where I want it to be and sound, get all the elements in there takes at least um, maybe max a week. Sometimes it's done in a single day if it's the right mood, the right vibe, right environment. But um, for example, my song Don't Trip took about a week to find that rap vocal, kind of speed it up and then put another bass line behind it, etc. But something like Summertime in New York, which was signed to Dimmock, took about two, three days for the basic idea. And then everything else was just extra elements added on later. Okay. Congratulations again on the Denmark release. That's, that's awesome. Um, and and that baseline is so catchy. I, I actually found that track before I reached out to you about being on the podcast. I found it on uh, BPM Supreme, which is a record pool for DJs, but it was one of the tracks that was on there. And I was just kind of scrolling through hot new releases. I was like, wow, this is, you know, hard to sit still through. So it was, uh, really good. It's, it's definitely going in my set list. That is so interesting. It's a comment on that. I've been using BPM Supreme when I first started DJing um, in Chicago, just getting to learn how to do that. And I've been emailing their support team for about a year trying to get some of my tracks on there and even recently for this song. But I guess the label took care of it for me and put it on there. So that's really great to hear. I'm going to check it out because I do have a subscription to BPM Supreme. Yeah, I think it's the labels that typically submit to it, but I, I honestly, I'm not sure. I haven't uh, submitted anything to a, yeah. a a record pool, but I've used a, a few of them now. Tell me, how, so how did that come about? The release with Demock? Did you reach out to them? Did you have a manager? Was it happenstance with somebody knew somebody else? Or yeah, of course. So that's a great question, and something I truly believe. I think my experience kind of is emblematic, if I'm using that word correctly, of how records are going to get signed um, in 2022 and in the future is, this is my hunch, is that I think that the general demo email is going to be going away. Um, it still might be there for some labels, but the way I got mine signed was purely through relationships, just you know, networking with people online, especially through this app called Clubhouse, where I was mm-hmm. invited by a friend of a friend. And initially, I didn't know what the app was about, but I realized the app's not like any other social media where you're trying to sell something, although there are people now that are trying to do that. For me, it was more about during lockdown, joining these rooms with all these ARs, big DJs talking about music, NFTs, um, just random topics. And I met Austin Kramer, who um, who's great. He works at Tomorrowland. He had some experience at Spotify. And I, I joined this room called Dope or Nope on Clubhouse. And that's where I met Lorne, who ended up signing my record to Dimmock. He's a VP of the record label. And it came about after I DM'd George Hess, who actually uh, works at Armada Music, also part of the same clubhouse room. And you, so basically every Friday, they used to have um, a room called Dope or Nope, where you DM new releases. Um, and they just kind of play them or demos that are unsigned. They play them, discuss them, and see if anything can get signed. And obviously, you know, I didn't get anything signed for a few months. I was just there networking, sending a few songs in, getting feedback. And then one of the sessions, they had Laidback Luke and uh, King Topher um, Mm -hmm. on the session as a guest. And that happened to be the session that they played my song in. And kind of for the first time after, you know, not getting response for demo emails or any of that, I had four or five people say, I'd want to sign your record. Like they, multiple people in the room wanted to lay back Luke, a bunch of, a bunch of people in there. And I was like taken aback. I'm like, wow, going from like no one responding to emails to a bunch of people wanting it. Um, it was an interesting experience. And then eventually I talked to George Hess and then Lauren eventually was passed on to him. And 
he kind of took it from there and said, we'd love to sign to Dimmock. And um, I guess the rest is history in the making. So that had to have been an incredibly exciting experience. What was your, aside from jumping up and down, probably, what was your yeah. next step after you got all these uh, emails saying, hey, we're interested? Did you talk with a manager? Did you talk with a lawyer? Did you start um, reading over stuff? Or what, what was maybe, your next move? Yeah, maybe I should have done some of those things. But I just was kind of actually they I was listening to that episode live at the um, at this ear doctor because I was trying to get in ear moles for custom a monitor. So I was also like on the road, I couldn't just freak out and like at a hospital, right? But um, <laughs> so I was there, I, was, I came back to my car, and I was just sitting there, I'm like, holy shit, wait, is this, but also, you know, nothing's guaranteed, right? They showed interest, but that doesn't mean any of them are going to sign it. Um, right. You can like a record without having to sign it. So I didn't want to count my um, chickens before they hatch, and I was just waiting. And then after those email conversations, um, I just kind of went straight ahead, I read the contract, to me, nothing stood out as, you know, blatantly kind of taking advantage. They're such a great team. And actually, the for being such a big label, Dimmock allowed me to be part of their marketing discussions and helped create the cover art, the Spotify canvas and marketing plans, etc. So because that's part of what I love doing, the marketing side, the graphic design. And the fact that they let me do that uh, with them was a great experience. That's fantastic. Okay, great. So shout out to Dimmock Records and and yes. terrific, terrific first experience. First of many, probably. Yes, hope so. Fingers crossed. <laughs> uh, so you've also done a lot of edits. Um, I was looking at your SoundCloud page and you've got a lot of different edits of, of popular tracks in there. What's your approach when you're creating a custom edit for a set? So usually I listen to the song on Beatport and I kind of figure out like what is the vibe, like what vibe am I getting? Is it like, you know, a mid-set, early set, late set kind of song? Or sometimes I'm on sh on Spotify and I and a song comes up and I like everything about it. And the way I think about that is if I was in the studio with this artist, what suggestion or change would I have made if they asked, oh, would you want to make a remix or would you want to collab on this hypothetically? So... For example, the the remix with um, the Jumpin' song, um, it was it was relatively easy to make because West End and Sid left the vocal kind of bare at the second drop. So I usually look for that. That helps me make a proper remix where I can take that vocal, you know, and put all my own production behind it. But mm -hmm. then you look at something like Witch Doctor by John Summit. Great tune. Love it. But obviously, it's fully instrumental, you know, throughout. There's Thai energy throughout the track. So there's no spot that I could kind of isolate a stem or single instrument to remix it. So in that scenario, I kind of just added my own stuff to the final master from Beatport. But it kind of depends on kind of what I'm feeling, if I have any ideas, and, uh, and, and I kind of see what the opportunity is for a song. But most times, I guess my idea behind making some of these edits, and I have a few more that... Um, I might be able to put out soon, uh, all unofficial at this point. But it's just that when you look at something on Beatport and it's top 10, top 100, uh, it's there. Uh, it's up there for a reason that everyone's buying it, which means if I'm playing a show as a headliner opening or somewhere in the middle, there's a high chance that someone's played one of those top 100 songs, if not all of them. So just kind of standing out. How can I stand out if I'm going to play the same record, but can I change it up to, so people know it's not the same one. It's a different version of it. So that's kind of also where I, where my head's at when I'm making these edits. I don't want to make it too similar because I'll just play the original song. Can I make it, can I infuse kind of like my vibe and my style into that track? Yeah. You, you mentioned um, Armada Music, and I took a uh, master class a little while ago with uh, Armin Van Buren, and uh, it, it was interesting because one of the comments that he made is that when he's playing a set, every single song that he does, he's made an edit to. So he doesn't play anything straight off of Beatport or a record pool. He's always making changes to it and, and customizing it. So I thought even if it's just a little tweak, you know, changing the buildup or yes. um, changing where you come in or exit or, you know, something to give it your own flavor. 
No, I was just going to say that um, that's a great point. And like, uh, I've noticed that as well with his music and sets. And I guess like even going back to the idea that I love hip hop music a lot in, in, in a lot of my remixes, I tend to use samples that have been used in my favorite records, like that perfect sound effect from Street Fighter or like the signature like snare or, you know, some of the stuff that Metro Boomin uses or his kind of 808s or hi-hats. Like in Summertime in New York, you hear a lot of these like triplet hi-hats and stuff throughout. It's kind of taken from a lot of the like hip hop records I've listened to from a lot of my favorite producers in Atlanta. So I try to like mix some of that in and try to use the same idea, like you said, for other remixes. How can I make it stand out? Someone can hear that and say, that's something original, so I like it, but it's also something new, so let me look into it. Okay. When you're Whether you're working on remixes or edits or original tracks, do you have any plugins that you just can't live without? Um, I used so before I really learned um, Logic Pro to the extent that I kind of know now, I just kept buying all these plugins. I have, I think Sound Toys has like a whole suite of plugins. I don't know how to use half of them. But ever <laughs> since Tool Room Academy, they taught me that you can make a really good song with just stock plugins. And then once you know how to do that, then you know why you're buying a certain plugin. And currently, uh, since I know I can do a lot of the things that plugins do um, natively in Logic, the two main ones I use primarily to speed up my process are um, Endless Smile and Sausage Fattener by Dada Life, uh-huh. another um, another artist. And I love them as artists. And I'm like, oh, they made plugins. Let me let me purchase this. And it's really helpful to make buildups and kind of add that uh, crunch to any of the drums or bass line, et cetera. Oh, I hadn't thought about adding them to uh, – usually I've used – uh, endless smile, particularly for buildups. I've never thought about using it on drums. That's interesting. Oh, no, no, I meant uh, the sausage fattener plugin on drums because it kind of brings out the top end and makes it a little more, I guess, crunchy. I don't know if that's the right word, but um, yeah, gives a better idea for. It. But endless smile, not really drums. I guess if you've heard Vocoder's song, yeah, um, on Spinning Records, I think I have a hunch he uses endless smile for the buildup because it's just. The, I think he busts it to Endless Smile because it's just a bunch of reverb and then it all cuts off straight up. And it sounds like the second or I think the third option in Endless Smile, if I'm not mistaken. But I don't know for sure. Yeah, and in Endless Smile and I mean, both of those Dada Life uh, VSTs are so, I mean, I think there's one knob in each of them. So exactly. it's nice and, nice and simple. You don't have to <clears throat> get paralyzed by 50 different parameters you can adjust. So yeah, I, I, I'm a fan of both of those. So tell tell my listeners about Tool Room Academy. What uh, what is that, and uh, how is that impacting your production? Yeah, of course. So um, I kind of contemplated over the idea of going into it for about a year. Um, I don't know if things would have been different if I did it a year ahead, but again, you know, I can't have any regrets, right? But um, I thought about it for a year because it was, um, you know, like a proper tuition, kind of like a proper class. It's not you pay $1,000 and you get a link to a 10 video playlist. It's um, Pete, who is part of the A&R team at uh, Tool Room Records, and Ben, uh, who is half of Tough London, uh, teaching us live. So every week we had sessions where we had homework to submit, and we had a private Facebook group. And even right now, there's actually another private Facebook group that you can join once you graduate from any of the Tool Room classes. And we have these uh, these A&R sessions where Mark Knight's on there. We have, I think, one with, I believe, Paul or someone who handles um, artist management for Maxine and these huge tool room artists. So just the fact that beyond just giving you the information on how to produce music, it's kind of like a community as well. And you get priority um, at tool room submission for demos and get feedback from not just anyone, but like people who are really well known in the industry for their proper house music. That's fantastic. How long have you been a member there? I've been a member. um, I graduated about a month ago. Our last class was about a month ago and all of my classmates were added to the the other main group about a month ago as well. So um, I think a course was about six months or so, four to six months. I have to double check. But it's been a, it was a long time because I was shuffling, uh, you know, work and then me trying to 
record DJ sets around Chicago and this course. So it was a lot, but every week I had something to work on. Yeah. Well, that's, that's pretty awesome. So summertime in New York was kind of your senior thesis then. Yes, exactly. Um, (laughs) like went back actually because, because of the course I went back and I was able to add, um, something that made the baseline more interesting was the, uh, the pitch bend at the end of every, uh, other, um, note. So that kind of added more of like an oomph to it, in my opinion. And I learned that technique in tool room Academy and it's all this stuff that's in logic, but you never know how to press all these buttons. I guess before Tool Room Academy, I knew how to press around like 30% or 10% of the buttons in logic to do what I want to do. Now I'm at like an 80 plus to 90%. And there's still some extra stuff that I can learn on my own as well. Or even just ask in the group and they're still open to answering questions and helping us out. Is uh, Tool Room Academy mostly logic users or is it also Ableton and other DAWs? So I believe it's primarily Ableton, actually. There's a lot more Ableton courses or alumni, but um, I chose a logic option, um, and I believe it might have been a new addition, but they offer both Ableton and logic. I haven't heard any other DAW offered at the moment, although they might be adding new ones in the future. Okay. All right. I'm, I'm going to have to check that out. I've been a member of a similar group, I think, uh, Producer Dojo, but it is very, yeah. it's run by Ill Gates. It's very uh, bass music centric. We've got a lot of artists on there that are, that do other things than just bass, but um, they've got a lot of, lots of tutorials. They've got an active community. They've got a, an A&R team. They've got a label as well. So it seems, it seems kind of similar. Yeah. Honestly, I think um, whether it's Tool Room Academy or even some like what you mentioned or even like um, Icon Collective. There's a few other platforms as well. Even like my original mentor, Weston, he has a platform called Kickbase, which I've heard great things from, from a lot of my other producer friends who are just getting started and they're in, the, in his community. So I think at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter who you talk to, just the fact that you do one of those and kind of put your head down and kind of figure it out yourself. Because it's... I don't think any of these are going to make any of us into like superstars, but it gives us the ideas to take those creative ideas in our head and actually put them down. So find find a mentor you click with and and follow yeah, through. 100%. Like West End, you know, I still am able to like talk to him every now and then be like, hey, you know, what do you think of this song? Or like, you know, what label could I send this to? I asked him, like, I had my first festival gig about a month and a half ago in Chicago and I, I, and I don't have a manager, so I didn't know what to, ch- what to say my rate was. So I asked Weston, oh, what, what should I charge for like, you know, my first gig? And he gave me some insight into his stuff. So just like, it doesn't have to be him, right? But for me, I kind of click with Tyler, but it depends on what kind of music you're making, what artists you like. And today with the internet, you know, it's so cliche to say this, but everyone's so accessible. Like I just DM people. It doesn't, cause what's the worst you're going to get a no or an ignore? Like that's fine. But at least you tried. So, and if you DM a hundred people, not the same message, but you know, a heartfelt, like personalized message and you're genuinely interested in getting their help, I'm pretty sure at least one or two of them will respond if not all. Yeah. Okay. Good advice. Uh, tell me about that first festival gig. How did it go? And w- which festival was that? It was called, uh, so it's a festival in Chicago that's been running for quite a few years. Um, and it's more geared towards the uh, classic Chicago house um, artists and crowd. For example, I met Mike Dunn and Felix the House Cat, a lot of these like iconic Chicago figures. And I was kind of an opener. I played earlier in the day. It was my first festival experience on like a real stage, you know, on a pair of CDJs. And shout out to Marcus, actually. He's uh, he's one of the people who runs a festival. He reached out to me and said he'd like to book me. And I was so excited. And it's just down the street in a neighborhood called Pilsen. Uh, so it was a great experience. Um, amazing. And uh, yeah, great team actually to work with as well. Because yes, the gig is amazing. But I've heard so many stories from other DJ friends where the pay may have been great, the opportunity might have been great, but the people you're working with were not great. But in my case, everything was great. So um, I'm just grateful for that opportunity. Wow, that's that's amazing. First, terrific first experience, and yeah. and they just reached out to you out of the blue. You you hadn't contacted them or or anything. Um, no, actually, well, now that I went back, I don't think it's because of this. I think on my Instagram a while back, I I posted this, but 
in 2019, before, you know, I started making proper house music or whatnot, I reached out and said, hey, I'm a DJ from Chicago. I'd love to play here. No response. I mean, I don't know if they didn't see it or they just ignored it, but it, it didn't say <laughs> scene. So maybe they didn't even see it. But um, then later they reached out on their own. And then it's not because of that DM, I guess. But in my eyes, you know, from my perspective, it feels like, oh, I reached out and then it happened later, you know, but I don't think they were directly connected. But I think they just saw, you know, the various things I've been doing around the city with the DJ sets, the new releases, and uh, just me sending out music to other people. And I guess the word got around and they thought I'd be a good option to open up for the festival. Okay, terrific. Well, all the social media work is is paying off and the persistence. I was looking at your YouTube and and I, I think your live from series is really interesting. And you were just kind of alluding to that with the playing around the Chicago area. So it, it it looks like you're setting up your turntables and recording it from your iPhone and you're just finding interesting locations around Chicago from uh, Lincoln Park to the canals to Chicago O'Hare parking yes. lot. Um, what? Tell me about how you're setting that up and recording yeah. it and what inspired that, uh, that, that series of live sets. That's right. Of course. Yeah, that's a great question. And thank you for like kind of doing your research. I, I think it really shows in this interview that you kind of actually did your research and like you're asking the right question. So I appreciate that first. Um, you're welcome. I and in regards to the DJ sets, um, like the O'Hare one, actually, uh, if you notice halfway through, I switched locations because security came and said I can't record there. So again, you know, my <laughs> motto is ask for forgiveness, not permission. Um <laughs> Uh, especially when it comes to these opportunities. So tried it out, you know, it came out really well. But what I do is, over the pandemic, I did move back home uh, with my parents uh, back in the suburbs because uh-huh. the rent in the city didn't make sense with, you know, everything locked down and I moved to the city for the amenities, right? So yeah. understandably, I was able to invest in a car. So now I bought a portable battery from Amazon, I think way less than 100 bucks or something, around 100 I bought a used uh, XDJ RX2, simple cables. I was going to invest in an expensive camera, but I realized I paid close to 1000 for my iPhone. Why don't I use that? So mm-hmm. I put that up and I realized that I can control the camera from my Apple Watch. So I have all the remote wireless technologies that I need. I set that up, have an old tripod and just start recording. And then I airdrop that uh, video to my Mac, and then uh, I record it on the USB, which the XDJ lets me do. Sync it up in Premiere on Adobe, and uh, we're done with the set. Wow! And you're you're actually not playing with speakers at all. You're just playing through your headphones and recording the audio. And then syncing up later. Literally performing to the trunk of your car. Yes. Yeah, so um, sometimes, exactly. So I don't use speakers, which also. Um, gave me more experience in trying to DJ with just in-ear monitors because I'm trying to get to that spot where I can cue the master and the new one in my headphones just to, because I played, you know, even at the festival I played, the music is really loud, right? And people love loud speakers and that's what it's all about. But just to protect my hearing, I realized that I can wear earplugs or now that I have a new skill that I kind of built where I can DJ completely with just headphones. Um, I think I'll be able to use that in the future, kind of save my hearing while I DJ. But that's how I did. Very cool. Very cool. Clever idea. And then the other thing that I saw in there that struck me was the Fortnite sessions. What are you, tell tell my listeners about what that is and and why you got into that. Of course. Yeah. So over the pandemic, um, I'm not a gamer, but I tried, you know, I'm I'm not a, uh, I'm not good at gaming at all, but um, it was a great way for, (laughs) Uh, me to kind of talk to my friends, right? And a lot of my friends had Nintendo Switches, so they downloaded Fortnite. And I, I tried playing Call of Duty Warzone. I'm not good at that either. Um, so I kind of gave up on that. But then with Fortnite, at least it was a way to kind of hang out with my friends virtually almost every single day, if not every other day. Mm-hmm. Let's get together. Even if we sucked at the game, at least we you know got a few laughs and talked to each other. So Through that, I kind of fell in love with the game and I was like, what other options are there in the game other than the actual fighting part, which I'm bad at? And I realized there's a Minecraft kind of mode called creative where you can build anything you want ever with all the materials from the main island of the game. And Hmm. so I ended up trying to build different stuff and I realized there's a uh, music kit where there's speakers and like a DJ turntable, etc. And then I realized, what if I just build 
since I'm not getting any gigs during the pandemic, what if I build a custom stage in game and then just put a DJ mix over it that I record or make in logic. So I started doing that. And then I realized to publish an island or make it official, you need a Fortnite creator code via Epic Games, uh, their parent company. And I reached out to them and I guess they liked some of the stuff I was doing with the creative music stuff uh, via Fortnite. And they gave me kind of official creator status, which allowed me to kind of publish these islands. So for example, if you or anyone else wanted to visit one of them, I can give you a 16-digit code and you're able to go in and look at the, the structure. So from there, I just kind of have been doing a few of those, trying to create unique islands, etc. And I may have one more that I'm still working on that's going to be out soon. Does Fortnite support the ability to do like a virtual concert where you could kind of stream it live and interact with people and have their avatars come to your private islands? Or like, I don't know, I've heard of DJs doing things in Second Life and some of these other virtual environments. There probably is. I should look into it more. But I know officially there is a way because Marshmallow did that. There was a Travis Scott mm-hmm. concert in game that I attended before. But I just don't think, you know, um, I have that much of a connection with their creator team to have something like that or like the pull, right, you know, with the popularity. But eventually, I think hopefully um, that is one of my goals. That would be really interesting to have an boy the Bag concert in game. But um, I think that's still a ways away, and that's something, you know, it's a goal I can work towards um, to getting. Yeah, certainly a good thing to do as the pandemic is still still yeah. going on. Um, tell me, let's talk a little bit about branding. Um, a boy with a bag, What? where did that come from? <laughs> yeah, so that's a great question. Um, so I kind of tell people sometimes that like Sai, like my name is, it's not a one-to-one comparison, but it's kind of like, the John of Indian names in the sense that it's so common. Like a lot of people have that in South India where I'm from. And I realized I would have loved to make music under that name, you know, three letters, easy to remember. But if I, if you ask me for my music, I'm like, yeah, to search Sai, first of all, like Saint, something's going to come up. None of my music's going to pop up or branding or photos or Instagram. So I kind of remember when I was making hip hop music, uh, the kind of the phrase in the culture called like secure the bag, right? That was like a whole thing. And I'm like, okay, well, how can I kind of play off of that since I love making hip-hop music? And then just the phrase, avoid the bag, came to mind after a few ideas I put down on my notes app. And then I Googled that and I realized that the SEO for that is great because no one's ever used that phrase um, before, I guess, like together as one word. And I just bought, I went to Google Domains, bought the email, bought the website, changed all mm-hmm. my socials to that. And now I can just tell someone, yeah, just Google a boy with a bag and the first hundred pages are just my stuff. So it's an easy way to kind of brand myself, I guess. Yeah, that's that's so important. And that SEO and, and ability to easily find you is is key. I had a, um, uh, a uh, Portuguese rocker on a while back that I've collaborated with a couple of times, Sandra Bullet, and uh, does some amazing stuff online. Um, uh, she's been very active on Fiverr. She she does vocals and and all sorts of interesting live streams. Yeah. But her name is challenging because if you search for Sandra Bullock, inevitably Google corrects it to Sandra Bullock, the actress. Yeah. And so unless you do it just right, and actually if you search for it as one word, she's hard to find. So that's that's important. And I don't think a lot of artists uh, give that enough thought up front. Yeah, actually, like one of my other producer friends, um, he currently goes by Subshift. I actually forgot his original artist's name, but he has some amazing music, um, uh, bass house, tech house, etc. And he had another name that he was making music under with release on Insomniac and all these huge labels. But he had to change his name because someone else had a similar name that probably had the legal rights to it. So I think it's really mm-hmm. important that even though you have great music, just think about all the other aspects of it. And something else I think of also is um, being family friendly, just because um, it's not a bad thing to not be family friendly, but you have as an artist and someone who's trying to do music full time um, to kind of you know maximize your revenue and make sure you can support yourself with your art. If you're family friendly, you more door more doors open for you in the industry and opportunities for sponsorships, etc. So I just think that's also something to keep in mind: SEO and uh, is it fan of family friendly? And also to your brand, if your brand isn't family friendly, then don't do it. Kind of being true to yourself and kind of making sure it's accessible to the as many people as possible. Increase your 
total market reach. Why not? Yeah. Well, you you certainly do a good job with that positivity in your brand and and sort of bringing that out and hyping up other artists. And uh, I think that's terrific. And I, I kind of go for the same thing myself. Uh, one of the things I was noticing about you is you're, you're sort of a champion for inclusivity in the DJ community. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that relates to your brand? Yeah, of course. So, I mean, me being like a South Asian guy, just in America, just you know, trying to make house music, which isn't, uh, which is inherently more of a, a Western genre. Um, I think it, I've just been seeing, obviously, you know, there's like the idea general, in general discussion that um, a lot of DJs are just straight white guys. And I see that, uh, I see that argument a lot. But the problem is, I do know a lot of great producer friends who are just straight white DJs, but they're amazing human beings, great producers. But I think they also, a lot of them I talk to understand that there's room here for everyone to kind of coexist and slowly increase the diversity. You know, I don't think it's uh, um, either or. I think there's room for everyone to kind of exist. And I think the biggest thing is just being more open to newer voices, newer sounds. And I think just people like uh, like all these Twitch streams, et cetera, this clubhouse stuff that I talked to you about, they've been really helping open up I guess kind of opening doors for someone like me and other people who look like me, et cetera, to start putting music out on bigger labels. One thing I think about uh, when I think about diversity is I understand why some labels or brands may have like, you know, playlists or compilations or whatever that are like, oh, we're highlighting, you know, um, Asian artists or South African artists, et cetera. But I think it's important to have that, but also at the same time, just have them on the main label, on the main stage. You don't need to have a separate section uh, for diversity. Just make it all into one thing. And I think the more we do that, the more normalized it's going to become that um, anyone in the world can kind of make house music and be part of the community. Yeah. That's kind of long-winded. I don't know if it made sense, but... Yeah. No, absolutely. It does. And and I think one of the incredible things about this digital era that we live in is that, you know, there is a niche out there for every artist, I believe, you know, if you, yes. because of the size and scale of the global audience, you know, no matter what you look like or what your sound is, there is probably somebody out there that is interested in what you're doing. It's just a question of, can you find them and connect them with your music? I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm actually really excited about having you on this podcast because, interestingly, half of my listeners on this podcast are from India. So I think they're going to be really excited to hear this this interview with you. Happy to well, hello everyone. How's it going from Chicago to India? I've been I haven't been to India since 2012. I need to make a visit back there. Maybe, maybe soon. You know, if I can, yeah. secure some bookings out there, that would be very dope. But we'll see. that would be awesome. So, what were the major cultural differences that you had to overcome coming to Chicago, sort of backing away from music for a minute, but yeah, talking about your life. I guess I would say just in general, and this kind of applies to a lot of people who are first generation, I think that's the right phrase, first generation South Asian Americans. Cause like I'm a U.S. citizen, I have a U.S. passport, but obviously my cultural background is from India. So it's always this idea of you're not I guess growing up, you're not too American enough or you're not too Indian enough. You know, I could be here and maybe in like middle school or something, someone's like, oh, what are you eating? But then you go to India and they're like, oh, your accent's weird. So then you're in the middle, like none of nothing works for anyone. And I think lately, you know, that's been um, kind of broken down those barriers, especially with Gen Z. And I've seen like a lot of the stuff they've been championing and kind of taking forth. And I think there's a lot of good change coming through and I believe like people can change. So I'm not one to vilify someone who might have, you know, potentially made fun of me in elementary school because maybe that was just the status quo back then or like that's what their parent or someone might have told them. But I think there's always room for people to learn and uh, kind of expose them to different cultures and and grow from there. Actually, I just remember this one story that my friend told me that she went to a high school reunion recently and she expected that because uh, she lived near me, which is like very like rural America, kind of out in the suburbs. And we kind of expected that the she expected the high school reunion would be, you know, people who might be, you know, kind of 
potential a little bit racist or maybe not for the vaccine, etc. And when she went there, every one of them said, yeah, as soon as I left this town and experienced more cultures and just met people who weren't exactly look who look like me or talk like me, etc., I kind of understood that there's more to like this, the world in general than just our town and this neighborhood. And that really changed them. And they're really open-minded to new ideas and stuff. So I really think the, it's not a good idea to just vilify someone when, you know, they have a different opinion, but just like expose them to different options and be like, this is what's out there. Like make your own decision, but here's everything. Here's all the facts, you know? Yeah. I, I, the optimist in me wants to believe that if we expose people to enough ideas, people will sort of gravitate towards um, the positivity and, and the, you yeah. know, I, I worry here in the United States that we've, particularly over the last couple of years, we've become very, very polarized and um, yeah. that, that worries me. And I'm, I, I don't know what the answer is to bringing people back together again. Um, certainly as a DJ, I would like to think that bringing people together for good music and, and uh, mingling and, and having a good time helps, but there's also some tough discussions that need to happen. Exactly. I mean, I've, I mean, so at this point, I'm not really to, a, a touring artist yet, which hopefully, uh, you know, if things pan out, that would be a great option for me. But I see a lot of my other friends in the industry, big and small, getting back into their tours and stuff. And the whole idea of, you know, uh, with everything going on with the pandemic and people being safe, whether it's distancing or taking whatever to make sure you're safe from it, it just like change up so much of the conversation from just the music to, you know, a lot of the arguments and like bringing politics into it. But I don't know. I just wish everything kind of went away, but you know, that's not how life works. We have to work through it. Um, again, mm-hmm. just like you said, I have no answers either, but Hopefully someone who has more influence than both of us makes the right decisions for people to be on the right track. But, you know, I guess we can do what we can do. Yeah. Do you, do you have, you know, looking 20 years down the road when you are a major recording artist and traveling the world, do you have an opinion on artists using their platform for, to champion particular social causes. You know, there's, there's some artists that are very active with that and others that steer clear of it and just focus on their music. Do you, if you had millions of followers, how do you, how would you use that influence? I think personally, um, again, this is like hypothetical, right? Because I don't have any of that at this point, but I believe. (laughs) Yeah, you're me either. Yeah, I believe that if you have a platform and first of all, as an artist, people say, Oh, you should kind of stay out of politics. But the idea of that is absurd to me because you're living. I mean, it's another cliche. We live in a society. Yes, we do. So, you know, you're part of that. Like you're part of a neighborhood where taxes apply to you, mandates apply to you, rules that are made apply to you. So I think you have the right to talk about different political issues but at the same time, I think when you have a large audience, um, unlike me right now, I don't have a huge audience. So if I, uh, I don't know, I'm like skateboarding or I'm biking on the sidewalk, which uh, apparently you're not supposed to do in Chicago. It's not as a big deal as if like Fisher or someone else kept doing that every day because the m- number of people that see him and think, oh, I'm going to do this too, is going to be way more than someone thinking, oh, a boy, the bag did this, I got to do this. But I think as your following grows, you definitely have to make sure that what you post isn't just it's not viewed by one or two people. There's millions of people watching this and everyone is going to interpret that in their own way. So you kind of have to keep that in mind, um, I guess, as you grow. But I guess I would say that I would want artists as they grow their following and I guess myself included to kind of champion causes that we good for like, I guess, a greater good of society. But it's kind of hard because I've seen some artists kind of, you know, go really into like the political side and, it becomes their brand over the music. And that's kind of a difficult place to be, I think, when you're trying to create art as a creative person and um, some of your other comments kind of overtake that. I think there's a balance there. I don't know what the balance is because I've never had to find that balance, but I do want to find that balance before I'm forced to find that balance. <laughs> yeah, I I feel like part of it is picking causes to champion that match your brand well. So you know, in, yeah. in my case, this last year, I, I certainly posted a lot of things and I had a pop-up banner on my website about wearing masks, which works very well for a costume ninja DJ. So yeah. that that fit well, but it's also an important social message. 
but you know, if I had been championing, I don't know, something else that didn't match well with my brand, I feel like it might not have gone over quite as well. So I totally feel that. I totally feel that. And like one thing for me, I guess, off the top of my mind is like mental health stuff. Um, I really think that's like we always talk about like going to the gym and, you know, staying fit. But there's a huge part that's kind of ignored, you know, especially with like stimulants and everything else that people are taking, caffeine, whatnot and all that. And we're just not in the best mental state as society, I think, in general. Even the best person who thinks they're in their best, like the best physical shape you're, you still have to work on your mind to make sure you you go throughout your day in life in the most peaceful way that you can. So I think that's something that I, uh, I really champion and I hope to continue. Yeah, that's, that's good. I think we definitely need more people because you, you don't see the, the wounds to the mind and uh, people forget about uh, mental illness and a lot of people cover that up. And so we need more people to speak out about that. Uh, so you said, um, you know, you would like to become a touring artist down the road. What's what's next for you? How are you going to capitalize on this momentum that you've got built up? I guess currently I'm focusing on kind of one release at a time. Um, I'm just talking to some of the people that I know, trying to see where I should send some of the music to or should I self-release? What should I do next? Um, I'm not in a hurry, you know, at this point to kind of start touring, you know, next year. So I think it's having that luxury of not having to like the pressure of having to put music out constantly. Cause I know there's some artists where it's their full-time job and you kind of need that touring money to kind of eat and like your daily life currently don't have that pressure. So I think I'm able to take it slowly and kind of see what's best for me. And uh, eventually hopefully I can have another record out by the end of the year and, um, and, and go from there. Okay. Well, terrific. What, uh, tell my listeners where they can find you online. Of course. Yeah. Like I said, with our branding conversation, just Google a boy with a bag with no spaces between the words and you'll find all my uh, platforms and everything on Google. Or if you're on a specific platform to search for that, that's probably going to be my at. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Sai. Of course. Thank you for having me. This is my first interview and I'm excited to see uh, how it goes. Thank you so much for listening. Just a quick reminder, I'm performing at this awesome little microbrewery and performance venue in Peachtree City, Georgia, called Line Creek Brewery, on Saturday, October 30th from 8 to 11 p.m. The event is called Booze in the Bubble, that's B-O-O-S. It's a family and pet-friendly costume party, and I'd love to meet you if you live in the area. We've got almost 300 people interested so far, so it should be a great turnout and a lot of fun. As always, I'll have links to everything on the show notes page. Just go to producerlifepodcast.com and look for episode 85. Until next time, this is the House Ninja reminding you to be somebody's hero today. Oh.